please remain standing for the reading of God's word this morning from Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Good morning. This side of the room got really bare. So I'm going to keep eye contact all around. Don't feel weird if you're on this side of the room and it feels like I'm looking at just you. There's just not very many of you over there. Just the way it is. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Book of Mark. We're back. Chapter 12, verses 13 to 17 today. That's Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. We took a week away from Easter because as today we talk about paying taxes. I didn't feel like paying taxes was very Eastery, So we picked a different passage last week to, to honor Resurrection Sunday. But with that, because we've been a week out, I want to remind us just of the context of what we're jumping into. This is a really important thing just in general when you're reading your Bible to, we want to dive in deep like we do on Sunday mornings here to individual texts, but we don't want to miss the uh, forest for the trees what I mean by that is sometimes we can analyze so much on just one thing, we forget that these, these things are given to us in a greater context, in a greater amount. And, and when we read the Bible, we want to make sure that we're reading it as it is meant to be read. In its context, its own canon helps us do that. It helps us get to what does this really mean. And so what we want to see is that in the context of this passage, I think thematically it's picking up really at the end of, the, of chapter 11. If you can remember there, if, you, if you're looking at your Bible, a lot of Bibles have uh, headings and subheadings over them. Those can be really helpful in a moment like this. We can see that the authority of Jesus was challenged at the end of Mark 11. And, and that start, set off a series of questions. He then answered that question kind of with a parable that we took the next week about the, the tenant farmers who talked about how Jesus needs to be taken seriously. And then we see some more questions coming his way. These religious leaders are coming to Jesus. Today is going to be Pharisees and Herodians. Uh, next week will be Sadducees. The week after, it's just a scribe. Uh, before that, it looked like it was a delegation from all three of those kind of groups all coming together. These various religious leaders are coming and they're asking him these questions all with the intent to trap him. Because what we were told in Mark eleven eighteen, 18, after Jesus went in and, disrupt, and disrupted the temple, remember that? He disrupted the way that they were worshiping. He started getting in the way of their desires, of what they wanted, the economic gain, the status gain that they were getting from God's truth. Instead of leading the people the way that God would have them lead the people, they were like those tenant farmers in the parable of the vineyard owner, that the vineyard entrusted his vineyard, that was God in the story, right? God entrusts his people to these tenant farmers, the religious leaders, to cultivate it and see it flourish. And they weren't doing that. 
They weren't doing the thing that God wanted them to do, but instead they were killing and beating God's servants, prophets, and prophets, and eventually they killed his own son. And that's what we know is coming up. Jesus has foretold that several times in the book of Mark, that he would come to Jerusalem, he'd be delivered over first to this group of people, they would then deliver him over to the Romans, he explicitly has said that, and that the Romans would put him to death, but then he would raise from the grave. So as we hit these parts of, of Scripture, we want to remember that that's the context. We've only been told the end. Jesus has already told you this is what's going to happen, and now it's playing out for them. And that's what he's seeing happen. And so you have these various questions And they all ask really terrible questions. They're silly questions. They're questions meant to trap him. They're not sincere and genuine questions. Until eventually in verse 35, Jesus asks a question about the identity of the Messiah. It's the kind of question they should be asking. But if you want to learn about that, show up about three weeks from now and we'll we'll do that. So there we go. Now you're enticing. You got to keep coming back if you want to learn what kind of questions should I be asking. But I do think it's important to point out, even today, as, as I think the the tone of the text is going to be pretty pushy on them. That that's how Jesus is dealing with people who are asking bad questions for their own gain. But he changes his tone, we see in the next couple of weeks, when people start asking sincere questions. Jesus wants sincere questions. If you have sincere questions about your faith, Jesus wants you to ask them. We want you to ask them. We want you to know that's a good thing to do. But unsincere questions, questions that are just meant to trap him, and he's going to get a little in their face. He's going to make them look silly. He's going to bring me a coin. Let me show you something, right? Why? Because he knows the intent of their heart. And it's told us in the text. They're just trying to trap him. They're not being sincere. They don't really want to know the truth. And so Jesus is going to make them look a little foolish in this text today. And so that's what we want to see. That ultimately, Jesus is, is, is answering questions, but he's doing it based on the people that he's talking to. And these people are being driven by desire. Their desire to see him arrested. Their desire to get rid of him because he's messing up this good thing they've got going in this temple. But Jesus wants to change desire. What Jesus is doing is he's answering this question. And he's he's going to get to a place where he says, render unto God the things that are God's. And he's calling out the tenant farmers. He's calling out the religious leaders who've been entrusted with this thing to lead well. They're not doing it. And Jesus is saying, render unto God the things that are God's. And that's the point of this passage. So that's the title of the sermon this morning is render what is due. And we're going to see that, that we were to render even when we're under pressure. We want to look at the example of Jesus in verse 13. And then we're going to look at verses 14 through 17 twice. Once we're going to look to what it means to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And then render unto God the things that are God's. So with that, let's look at verses 13 through 17. Verse 13. Chapter 12, book of Mark. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me have a look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is in this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. 
Well, that's our passage this morning. And so we want to see that we are to call to render what is due. To render is, is to give, to, to, to pay it back to the things that we are owed. We need to pay them. But ultimately, it gets back to not just Caesar, but to God himself. But what I want us to look at first in verse 13 and 14, the first half of 14, and looking at verse 13 first, is that we need to be willing to render even when we're under pressure. Jesus is coming into a situation. He's already told you. He knows these guys are against him. They're going to betray him. And it's going to end up with him dying. But he still speaks what is true. So in verse 13, it says, They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. The Pharisees are a group of religious leaders, of Jewish religious leaders, who differed from the Sadducees. That's who you'll talk about next week. And that the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. They believed that one day there would be this resurrection of the followers of God. The Sadducees didn't believe in that resurrection. And that comes to their question next week, but I'll save that for Jimmy. So what we look at is the Pharisees are those folks. And then the Herodians, it's kind of weird. We don't really know exactly who that is. It's kind of some debate. But here's what we know from the name. They're a group of Jewish people who have aligned themselves with King Herod. Herod is the ruler of this region. If we were to put it maybe in a terms that we might be more familiar with, it would be like a governor, right? So he is govern, governing over this province of these people that Herod is doing, but he is not himself a Jew. He's a Gentile, and he's not really a Roman, <laughs> but he's being appointed by Rome because Herod had a unique skill to him. He was really good at some political theater. He was good at politics. Herod knew how to bring these people, these Jews, and this Roman government, and how to appease both of them. So he would do things like build the Jews uh, or, or add on to the temple. We talk about when that happened in the temple. Herod built this beautiful spot that Gentiles could come as well. The Jews liked that. Hey, Herod's making us look a little better. So he would appease the Jews when he would do things like that. But he always made sure the Romans got their taxes. He made sure that the Romans got what they wanted from the area, that they would have their way as well. And so because of that, he made the Romans happy. And so these Herodians were these Jews who probably saw, listen, guys, we can't take the Romans. If we keep making the Romans mad, they'll come in and they'll just take what they want and they won't, we won't have a peaceful life. So what we need to do is we need to get in league with Herod, play their song and dance, and then the Romans will get what they want, which is some taxes, but they'll leave us alone. They'll let us kind of do what we want, which was fine for a certain class of Jews, but there were other Jews, the general populace, the people who had a little different feeling. The people would see that these are invaders. These are people that have come into our land, into our place, and they're oppressing us with these taxes. This denarius that we'd have to pay once a year is a full day's wages for them. And so these people come to trap Jesus in his talk. They're trying to trap him because they know the people are a fan of Jesus. We know that from earlier in the book of Mark where they're, they're fearing the people. But they want the Romans to get mad at Jesus because if Jesus answers this wrongly, they now have a reason to turn him over to the Romans who are the only people who can exact capital punishment. They can destroy him and kill him. The religious authorities, because they're under Herod, who's under Rome, right, the political situation, they can't just go around killing people and not get in trouble for it. That's the kind of thing the Romans aren't cool with. You can't just take the law into your own hands. So they've got to find a way to get Jesus to get tripped up. And so they ask him this question. So he'll either answer, and they can turn him over. The Herodians can go back and say, Hey, Herod, 
He's going to mess up what you got going on here. He's telling these people not to pay their taxes. Get him. Or he'll mess up and he'll answer in such a way that the Jewish people will no longer be as loyal to him. Now Jesus does something amazing here, and then we'll get to that in the next points. But Jesus answers in such a way that they render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but they still render under God the things that are God's. So even the faithful Jew cannot look at him and claim that he's a sellout paying off the Romans because Jesus helps them see how submitting themselves to Caesar is actually submitting to God in this particular situation. And so it's, a, it's an interesting thing. There's a lot of politics, first century politics happening in this passage, but we need that background. But now moving on to verse 14, which is what I really want to draw out of what I think we need to learn, what it means to render even when we are under pressure, is to set this trap and to make it work, they've got to have some really good bait. Just like any trap, we had some mice in our house uh, just a little bit ago. Peanut butter is the answer to catching those little guys, and we got them. All right, Judah and I took care of it, and what do we do? You've got to have good bait for the trap. And so they come to Jesus, and they say, they came to him and said, Teacher, Listen to what they say. We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now this is totally disingenuous. They don't really admire him. They want him to be dead. But that doesn't mean what they're saying isn't true. It is true. This is who Jesus is. He truly does love the way of God. And what's so interesting about all this is when we set a good trap, you've got to have really, really good bait. You've got to have the thing that captures the affections of the person you're trying to trap. You've got to have the thing in that trap, that bait. It's got to be something that they love, that they admire, that they, they just can't resist. I love my wife very, very much. I'm not always as self-sacrificing as I should be. And when we hang out at night and watch TV together, she loves it when I play with her hair. I don't always like to play with her hair. So Brittany, because she's a smart woman, will look to me and she'll say things like, Josh, don't you love me? Don't you think I am just the greatest wife in the world? And I'm such a good mom. I've taken care of your kids all day long. How am I supposed to answer that? Yeah, I love you. She knows. She's captured my affections. She knows that I love her. And if that's not enough, she even throws the kids in there. And I'm trapped. I say, yeah, I do. And she says, oh, then won't you play with my hair? Of course I will. Come here, let me play with your hair. I'm trapped because what she's done, she's taken the thing that she knows has captured my, my heart, the thing that I love, her and our children. I love them. And so she knows it's going to work. But look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at his character. Even his enemies, even his enemies look to him and they say, what, what's going to work? What's going to trap him? What stirs at the, at his affections? What does he love? The way of God. The way of God is what Jesus loves. That's what they set the trap with. Truly, you teach the way of God. He's consumed by it. And what's so interesting is if we contrast this to their confrontation, just a, for me, it's just a column over. If you look in your Bible, in, in, in uh, Mark 11, chapter, or excuse me, verse 32, it says, 
But what shall we say from man? Because they were talking about this, and they said they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people when he's asking their question. Jesus asked them a question, and they can't respond. Why? Because they're afraid of the people. When they come to Jesus, they say, we know that you're not swayed by appearances. We know that you speak what's true, even when it's not popular. We know that you're different from us. I want to say this is the light of his purity, the light of his holiness, this person who loves the way of God, his light is so bright, it casts light upon their darkness. And it reveals the sin that's hidden in the crevices of their heart. You think they would go around and be like, we're swayed by the people. We don't want to follow God. We would just follow people. No one, they don't say that. No good religious leader is going to say that out loud. But when push comes to shove, they have to admit the fact that they're not like him. The purity of his, the, the light of his purity, his holiness, it is shining brightly and it's revealing their sin. Their hypocrisy. I think we have to look at that and we say, what about you? What would people use to put you in a trap? What captures your affections and your heart? What would lure you in? Is it the way of God? Do your enemies know you and say, this person truly loves, proclaims, and teaches the way of God? And if I want to sway them and entice them, I know what makes them tick is the way of God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, this is written to a people who are being persecuted because they're not joining in. And in 1 Peter 4, he, he lists off these horrific kind of things of sexual immorality. Um, drunkenness, things like that, 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 that the world is participating in around them. And he says, they are surprised that you don't join in with them. The heart of, of the persecution happening in First Peter isn't because they are walking around and telling everybody that Jesus loves them, though they would say that as well. They would give a reason for their hope. The reason they're being persecuted and ostracized is because they're standing up for holiness. And they're saying, we will not be drug into the world's immorality. And we're going to stand up and we're going to be holy even when the world is not holy. And Peter exhorts them in chapter 2, be holy for your God is holy. And he's telling them, keep on, keep being holy. And then he says this in verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, listen, you don't belong here. This is not your home. You don't look like these people. And he tells them, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which weigh war against your soul. Passions of the flesh, even the fear of man, these religious leaders, that's what they're in. The passions of their own heart, their own flesh. They're not like Jesus, who's captured by the way of God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Remain faithful under pressure. That's the application from this, is we have to remain faithful even under pressure. Render to God even under pressure. This world is squeezing in on us. And it is making sin normal and holiness strange. And we are strangers and exiles here. 
But God is saying, be holy, for I am holy. Let the light of your purity shine on the darkness so that when they come to you and speak evil against you, they have to look at your good deeds and say, this just doesn't match up. And that's what we see in the rest of the book of Mark. When we get to the crucifixion, it's ridiculous. It's a mock trial. They can't bring anything against him. Pilate is saying, he's not guilty. He does everything he can. He even tries to compare him to a murderer. And Barabbas, and even then the people cry out, crucify him, crucify him, free the murderer, give us the murderer. That's what they want. Holiness shines light in the darkness. And we have to be a people who render what is due, who render and give unto God the things that are God, even under pressure. As the world squeezes us, in our understanding of what is right and what is wrong, God calls us to shine light into the darkness, to remain faithful under pressure. See, we are to be godly or like God in this world. And the reality is, is when you do that, it will make sin stick out. And that even includes trusting God by submitting to an imperfect government. See, because what we'll see in this passage is Jesus calls these people to submit to a grossly imperfect government as he tells them to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Picking up in verse 14, the very end of it there. So they've asked, they now ask the question. They've set the trap, they've set the bait that Jesus truly teaches the word of God. And they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is, is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. We're going to really look at the same chunk of verses here a couple times. We'll look at 14 all the way 17, and then we'll look at 16 and 17 in the next point here as we look what it means to render what is due, render unto God the things that are God's. So first I want to talk about what it looks like to render unto Caesar the thing that are Caesar's. Now, here's what we said. Like I said before, earlier, right, they're setting a trap. The Jews look at the Romans, and there is a, a good swath of the populace that would look at this and say, there are oppressors. We should not honor them. They're using our own money to fuel their own military, which then comes in and makes sure that we can't be free. So there are, there are Jews who would say, we should not pay these taxes. This is oppression. We're not going to do this. Absolutely not. We're not paying. That's what it means to be a faithful Jew. Now Jesus gets put to the test, and they bring him this, this day's wages, this denarius, and they say to him, what should we do, Jesus? Should we pay this? And Jesus' answer, as he looks at it, he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? And he said to him, Caesar's. And he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So Jesus basically tells them, pay your taxes. Pay this tax. Even though it's an imperfect and broken government. But then he adds on, and to God, the things that are God's. Now we'll unpack that in a little more in just a second, but just hold on for one minute. What we want to see is what Jesus is doing is he doesn't come. It, this is, it's a bit audacious of him. They're coming and they're saying, tell us who to obey. And Jesus is saying, me. That's what he's saying. 
Tell us who to obey, Caesar or God. And Jesus is basically saying me because Jesus speaks on both behalf, Caesar and God, in this passage. Jesus comes to them and says, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll answer this question. Bring me, a, bring me a Daenerys. Bring one to me. Let me see it. Whose likeness and inscription is on this? Pay your taxes. Jesus is doing something really bold. He's looking to all these people, and he's giving an unpopular answer to both sides. He is saying to that zealot who's wanting to say, we're not paying to Caesar. Pay your taxes. Submit yourself to an imperfect government. But he's also saying to these people who are fearfully just doing whatever the Roman government tells them to do, even allowing Herod to do what he wants with the temple, right? Even letting Herod run around, take his brother's wife, right? John the Baptist is the one saying, uh-uh, that's not your wife. Don't do that. These Herodians, these cowards, don't stand up for the things that are God's. They don't tell him, no, Herod, that sin, that is not your wife. And Jesus is coming along and he is saying, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but render unto God the things that are God's. That's bold. That's the kind of stuff that puts you on a cross at the end of the week. All right? That's what he's doing. And he's coming to them and he's saying, this is what you need to do. See, I believe Jesus is teaching us that we need to exercise some trust in the Lord as we entrust ourselves to imperfect government, but always understanding that all government submits to God. Paul helps us understand this a little bit more, but I think he's teaching from the same exact tradition, the same teaching that comes from this passage that Jesus would have taught. I think Paul expands it with the help of the Holy Spirit. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit when he writes Romans 13, 1 through 7. That'll be on the screen here for you just to follow along. Paul says this, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, he's writing this to Christians in Rome. Christians in Rome who do not have it easy, their life does not look like your life. They, they do not have religious freedom. They are meeting in secret. They are, they're, they are being persecuted openly. But he says, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. He's telling them, don't cause an insurrection. We don't fight back with sword. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who, who is in authority? Then do what is good. And if you receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Make no mistake. You don't use swords to give spankings. Swords kill people. He's saying the Roman go- the government bears the sword, and he doesn't do it in vain, so that he might enact justice when he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. The government does what they're supposed to do. For he is a servant of God, an avenger of who, of who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes." For the authorities are to be ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. And respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. What in the world is happening in the book of Romans? This this is not a good government. They're oppressive. They oppress the people of God. And Paul is saying, obey them. But he paints this picture of government, of what it's supposed to be. 
And he's saying government, when it functions the way it's supposed to function, punishes evil and protects that which is good. So the question is, what do we do when that doesn't happen? What do we do when government doesn't protect what is good? When it punishes what is good, like what happens, I talked earlier about First Peter, that's what happens to them. They're being punished for doing what is good. And God tells them in that book to continue to entrust themselves to God who judges righteously. But listen to the context of the book of Romans. Because what happens, the first couple verses, right before chapter 13, it's Romans chapter 12. Verses 19 through 21. Again, it'll be on the screen. It says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't have a ton of time to go into this. I'm just going to tell you how I take that last phrase. I would say, heaping burning coals on his head is actually an allusion to hell. I believe it's talking about God's future judgment. He's talking about hell. You may see the fire illustration there. If you have more questions than that, I just don't have time to prove that, to tell you. That's what I think. He's talking about hell and a future punishment coming for those who come after God's people. And God says, don't be vengeful. Don't pick up the sword in response. Don't kill when you're being killed. But in First Peter tells us, entrust yourself to the one who judges righteously. And then he gives the example of Jesus. You walk in the footsteps of Jesus and it says, and even though they were speaking and reviling him, he did not revile them in return. We look at this account of the cross. Jesus is having things untrue said about him, but it says that he remains silent. That he entrusts himself to the one who judges righteously. Because what is, what is happening in this passage? God is saying, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Because listen, God is going to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. God is going to render judgment to those who deserve judgment. And he is saying, if you suffer for doing what is good and you remain faithful in that suffering, know that you do not suffer in vain. The God of this universe will have his way. He will not be mocked and he will render justice when the time comes. This is a severe warning to anybody in authority. Anybody who is in authority. Politicians, police, pastors, and parents. Like my alliteration there. It doesn't matter who you are. You miswield that sword. God's people will respond by entrusting themselves to the one who judges righteously. God's people will respond by, even though being reviled, will not revile in return. That's what God commands us to do. That's hard for us because Americans are stinking history. As we said, get out of here, tyrants. <laughs> you British tyrants. And we didn't do that. We picked up guns and got our freedom. But, but the reality is, is, is God is telling Christians, he's telling Christians, trust me, trust me. Submit yourself to an imperfect government and pay your taxes, taxes that are being used to fuel your own oppression. Because one day I'm gonna come tearing through the cloud, clouds. And one day when I come, I'm not coming as a lamb. I'm coming as a roaring lion. And I mean this literally for the young kids in the room. There will be hell to pay. 
That's what Jesus is saying. You're heaping burning coals onto their head. So as we had our conversation earlier about pastors in other country right now who are being told by their government, preach this propaganda from your pulpit, or else I'll take your son and I will put him on the front line and make sure he gets killed. A pastor was told that this week. This week a pastor was told that. What is he supposed to do? The encouragement to him of other faithful pastors was go into your pulpit and you preach the gospel and you trust yourself to the one who judges righteously. And if they do that, the God of this world will render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. At the end of the age, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. While all who do not put their trust and faith in Jesus will incur, incur the wrath of hell, I, I do believe that each will be given according to his own measure. That's what Jesus says in Luke. So yeah, Hitler, Stalin are going to get it worse than probably your neighbor down the street. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know what people do who don't believe in hell. Christians who don't believe in hell. Christians who say hell, or hell is just an annihilation. It doesn't square with the Bible. But man, it, that, that just spits in the face of every oppressed person who has ever lived. In our culture, we want to try to take away this thing of hell. But persecuted Christians all over the world have looked and said, what are you doing? Don't you understand? That is the justice of God. You don't know what it's like to live like this. We need these promises that God will have his way. We need these promises that God cares. And that's what Jesus is looking at these leaders who've used their power to not help their people flourish and grow and see the coming Messiah, but have instead used their power to get their own economic gain, to get in tight with the Romans and get in tight with Herod and get in tight and get, get a name of the Herodians. And he's saying to them, render unto Caesars what is Caesars, pay your taxes, render to God the things that are God's. God will render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's as well. And it's not a stinking coin that will burn in this world, but it is righteous wrath and judgment. We don't like to talk about wrath. We don't like to talk about judgment, but it is, it's, we need it. It's God's justice in an unjust world. We submit to government, an imperfect government, as an exercise of trust in a perfect God. We submit to imperfect authority knowing that one day the perfect authority will have his way. So, pay your taxes. <laughs> submit to God in everything else and render under God the things that are God's. Picking up in verse 16. And they brought one, talking about the denarius, and said to him, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. I believe there is intentionality in the language of Jesus. When he asked whose likeness, he's using a word there for, for image, whose image is on this. And I think, I do believe, that he is hearkening back to Genesis. When it talks about, because he's going to say, render unto God the things that are God's. What's made in the image of God? We are. 
Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That, I think it's supposed to harken back. If you don't buy the image thing, it doesn't matter because, let's be honest, we read Psalm 24 and it told you everything belongs to God anyway, so you still have to obey it the same way. And if that, Colossians 1 will still tell you, for everything was made by him and for him, right? So whether you get there or not in that way, what is, what is God's? Everything is God's. The whole world is God's. Does that mean my money too? Yeah, it means money too. Why am I bringing up money? Because Jesus is literally holding a coin when he says this. He's holding a coin and he says, Render unto God the things that are God's. Is he talking about money? Of course he's talking about money. We always say, God's not after your money. God is after way more than your money. God is after every little part of you. God is after your money. Matthew 6, 24 tells us this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Why does Jesus even talk about money? Because Money, if we're just honest, is a reflection of our heart. It's a reflection of something deeper. If we hold on tightly to our money, it's because we're holding on tightly to other things. Is God after your money? Of course God's after your money. God's after everything. There's no part of your life when you become a Christian that doesn't get touched by Jesus. There's no part. There's no part of your life that you get to kind of hold off to yourself and say like, Jesus, you get everything else, but this over here, that's mine. No, 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 no. He says, you're going to be mine. You're mine. It's all of you. It's every part of you. Render unto God the things that are God's. You have to do that. Every single part of your life, your money, your kids, your home, your, list it, your talents, your abilities, your job, your station in life, where you live. God looks at every Christian and says, you're mine. You're mine. Give me what I bought. Because make no mistake, Jesus bought you. I'm going to read through four passages of Scripture quickly. They're just going to go on the screen right behind me. Because I want to show you that it's not just in one place in Scripture. God owns you. God owns you. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransomed is another way to say bought, purchased. Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious what? Blood of Jesus, like, like that, like a lamb without blemish or spot. First Corinthians 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Titus 2, 14. Who gave himself for us, talking about Jesus, to redeem us, an economic term, to redeem, to buy from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And finally, Ephesians 1, 7, verse that our church is named after, that we as a people are saying we want to identify with, says this, in him we have redemption. Redemption is an economic term. You're being bought. You're being redeemed. You were in debt, but he's redeemed your debt. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. If you are a Christian, you have been purchased. 
If you are a Christian, you are owned by God. If you're a Christian, you are blood-bought. You weren't bought with perishable things like silver or gold, but you were bought by the precious blood of Jesus. The precious blood of Jesus. Spilled for you, poured out for you. You do not belong to yourself. So render unto God the thing, the things that are God's. What do we owe God? We owe him everything. We have to render him everything. Now here's the beauty of that. You cannot live a better life than that life. You cannot live a better life than the life that says, I've submitted myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm giving him all that I have. That doesn't mean sacrifice isn't difficult. It is. That doesn't mean that living a faithful life isn't hard. It is. I've said many times, I'll keep saying it, Jesus doesn't make your life easier, but Jesus makes your life better. He doesn't make your life easier, but he makes your life better. There is in him a fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And when we see that, when we see that truth, that God is, is rendering, we were rendering to God. Why? Because he's rendered unto you that which doesn't belong to you. You don't deserve eternal life. You don't deserve to be in the presence of the Lord Almighty where there's joy forevermore, where his pleasures are ending. But that's what he's going to render to you when you stand before him on that day and you're wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus because you're blood-bought. He's going to look at you and he's going to say, good job, my good and faithful servant. Now come and enter into your rest. Come and enjoy all that I have for you forevermore where there is fullness of joy for all eternity. You don't deserve any of that. We render unto God the things that are God's because of the beautiful and wonderful truth. He has given to you that which isn't yours. He has rendered to you the thing that isn't yours. That is so amazing. That has to impact every part of who we are. That changes all of life. From the money to what you daydream about to how you spend your time. Render unto God the things that are God's. And know that that's the good life. I promise you, your life won't get easier. It won't. It's not easier to show up Sunday after Sunday. It's not easy to give of your income. It's not easy to to go this summer and work really hard so other people can know about Jesus. It's not easy to walk around in the cold like it was just a week ago, because this is Ohio, handing out flyers. And it's not easy doing it when it's blistering hot like it will be in a week from now because it's Ohio, right? We have a small window. Let's do it quickly, right? It's not easy. It's not easy to show up here and put this all together. It's not easy to sacrifice and go and be a part of a small group for the sake of other people. It's not easy to be in there outnumbered by a ton of children. These things aren't easy. Why do we do this? I'm going to render unto God the things that are God's. Because it's not easy, but it's better. It's better being a part of the local church, living the way God would have you live, it is better. So render unto things 
Render to God the things that are God's and know and live in light of the fact that you know that we are blood 